Well, amen. All right, if you have your Bible, let's go to uh, Romans chapter 1. We're going to just kind of do a little recap um, since it's been a while since we've been in the book of Romans as we come to chapter 9, and he mentioned something about God that we all struggle with, and it's a term that uh, really is fleshed out in Romans 9 through 11, and I'll talk a little bit about it deeper in a minute, but it's the word sovereign, the sovereignty of God. Uh, sovereign simply means the rule of. It's the rule of God over all of his creation. And so because um, certain things happen, uh, just like this couple who went through multiple miscarriages, you know, why, why did not God sovereignly intervene in their lives and, and give them the baby that they desired, and, and why did God allow them to go through those miscarriages? And so there are a lot of things that we uh, experience in life that cause us to question God, and we question His sovereignty, His will, and His ability. Some people say, ultimately, well, either God's uh, all good and not powerful enough to do anything about it, or if He's all powerful, He's not good, uh, therefore He's not doing anything about it, and everything in between. So we're going to try to flesh this out, but let's set the context of what we're going to look at in Romans chapter 9 today. And beginning in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, this is uh, really, or verses 16 and 17, these are really the, um, uh, it's the outline of the entire book that Paul has written called the book of Romans. Uh, it says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so he says, uh, the power of God is displayed in, in the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. He is the center of the gospel. Jesus coming into the world as God in human flesh, taking on a body, dying for the sins of humanity, pouring out his blood and being crucified, buried in the tomb, resurrected on the third day, displaying the fact that he is God in the flesh, that he has sovereign control over death. He has an answer to the sinfulness of humanity and to the destructiveness of what is happening in our own world. And he says he does this to set us in a righteous relationship with God. That big word, righteous, what does that mean? It means to be in a right relationship. I can't live right if I'm not in a right relationship with my creator. Because too much is going on inside of me called sin, right? So righteousness means that when I put my faith in Jesus, that all of a sudden something happened, something transpired. That Jesus took his righteousness, what was right about him, a right standing with God, and he credited it to my account and to your account. So now, through Christ, we are in a right standing with God. That right standing will never be altered. It will never go away. It will never fade. It will never pass away because I'm there not based on what I can do. I'm there based on what Jesus has done for me. So Paul starts out in Romans 1 trying to flesh this out. He says, you know, in the beginning, uh, our life, our human life just kind of spirals into ruin. We come into the world pretty much self-centered, we want to run our lives, we want to rule our lives, and we don't want God interfering, and so we go and we start doing our own thing, right? We determine what's going to make me happy, what's going to make me content, what is the purpose of my life, why am I here, why do I exist, you know, what is life really all about? And so we want a God, but we don't want a God who wants anything from us, who asks very little from us. We really want to call the shots, and we'll have God on the sideline in case of an emergency, right? So this is kind of how we live our lives, and we just start running after whatever we think will bring us ultimate happiness in life. Everybody wants to be happy, right? And so, you know, sometimes people go to someone and says, you know what, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and people are like, God loves me? Great, I love me too. I'm so glad that God loves He's got a wonderful plan for, I got a wonderful plan for my life. That means God's going to fulfill my wonderful plan that I have for myself. Right, so this is kind of how we approach life. And when you set God aside, you replace him with something else. This is what the Bible calls idolatry, an idol. It's something that I've, I, I put all of my passion in, all of my interests. 
Everything, I just infuse everything I have in it because I really think I live in this win-then syndrome. When I get this, then I will be happy. When I get this, then I'll be content. You know, we as married couples, right, you thought that when I get married, oh, life will be so blissful. It'll be so wonderful. And about six months into the marriage, you're like, what have I done? I don't understand what, who did I marry? You know, and then we, we go along, we want to have kids. Oh, life will be so great when we have kids, and then we have children, and then, you know, the temper tantrums and all the other things that go along with children. Like, you know, last time coming out of the airport, here's a mother dragging out her four-year-old, throwing this temper tantrum all over, wrapping his arms all around her, and she's dragging him out, screaming. I'm sure she's thinking, why did I have kids? I don't understand why I had children. Why did I have... I know you get there when you get teenagers, so, you know, it's like, oh, why did we do this? Uh, and so we just live our lives finding meaning and purpose, and we think to ourselves, you know what? Man, I'm truly free. I, I get to do what I want to do, and the Bible says our freedom, what we think is freedom really becomes enslavement. We become enslaved to the very sins that begin to unravel and devastate our lives. And over time, as we've pushed God aside and pushed him away, the Bible says that God, God then just gives us over to ourselves. And he says, if you want it your way, I'll let you have it your way. But when you're doing it your way, there comes a lot of consequences with having it your way. And so we make a wreck of our lives, right? We go through divorces. We are estranged with our children. Um, we have family issues. We have substance abuse issues. And the list just goes on and on and on and on. And then for most of us here today, if you were to share your testimony before this congregation, you would say, you know what? This is where I was going with my life. Man, I was in control and I was doing my thing. And you know, it wasn't giving me all I wanted, but I was going after it. But then all of a sudden, God got a hold of my life. God got a hold of my heart. God just began working inside of me and showing me that, you know what, this is not the right path that you should be traveling. There is a better way. There is a more profound way. His name is Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit, he just kind of brings conviction in your heart to pull you into relationship with Christ. And he puts you at the the crossroad of faith and says, now, if you'll choose by faith to receive Jesus, here's where you're going to find real meaning. Here's where you're going to find real purpose. Here's how you're going to unload your guilt. Here's how you're going to unload your shame. Here's how you're going to unload your sense of worthlessness. Here's how you're going to unload your identity that's built in something that it should never have been built around. And so you enter into that relationship with Christ, and all of a sudden, something inside of you dramatically changes. And you, you start down a new pathway, and, and life becomes different. And so Paul, through all these chapters, if you go to chapter 8 now, he has been describing how none of us are righteous, no, not one. We, we're not saved because we perform well. We're not saved because we get our act together. We're not saved because we're doing life well. We're saved because God loves us and he set his love upon us and he chose us to set that love upon us and he sent the Holy Spirit to draw us. Here's what Jesus said, unless the Holy Spirit draws you to the Father, you would have never come. It's an act of God. It is a work of God through the Holy Spirit. When people say to me, well, you know, Pastor, I really don't want anything to do with Jesus. You know, when I get ready to get saved, I'll get saved. No, you won't. Unless the Spirit of God draws you, you'll never come. There will always be another day, another excuse, another time, and then it will be too late. And so Paul says, now that we've experienced this incredible relationship with Christ, look in verse eight, uh, chapter 8 and verse 28. He says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son that we he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now you'll notice that salvation comes in three tenses, right? So the Holy Spirit draws me towards this relationship. 
I crossed the line of faith in Christ. I have this new relationship, so I have been saved. God has taken all of my sins, past, present, and future, and he has marked them paid in full. My certificate of debt is paid in full because the blood of Jesus is applied to my sin debt. I am being saved in that now God has me in the process of changing me from the inside out so that he begins to root out the sinfulness that is within me that has been governing my heart and directing my thought life so that I begin to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And he says, ultimately, I am going to be what? I am I'm justified just as I've never sinned. He's also glorified. Now, notice that he is, all, he is glorified, also glorified in God's mind that your glorification, what happens, which happens after you leave this world and you're now complete in Christ, complete sinlessness, I mean, you are in your glorified body. He says, when God looks at you, at the moment you cross the line of faith, he already sees you as a glorified human being which is why he does not relate to you in the here and now on the basis of your sin or on the basis of your performance. He does so on the basis of Jesus in you and you in Christ. This is Paul's favorite phrase. When you gave your life to Jesus, God put you into Christ and Christ into you. To give you a visual reminder of this, you go back to the Old Testament and the Ark of the Covenant. And when God was ready for Noah and his family to enter into the ark. God did not say to Noah, go into the ark. He said, come into the ark. If I say to somebody, go over there, that means you're going away from me. If I say, come to me, that means you're coming towards me, which means that Peter says that Jesus Christ was the ark. And God shut Noah and his family in the ark to protect them from the floodwaters of judgment. And as long as the ark is safe, guess what? They're safe. Noah might stumble inside the ark, but he's not going to fall off the ark. When you are put in Christ and he's in you, that means Jesus is your ark. You will never go down unless Jesus goes down and Jesus ain't going nowhere. So from God's perspective, what he began in you, he says, I will finish. I will, it will happen. Now, you may come kicking and screaming along the way from time to time, but I'm going to, I'm going to complete what I, I began because you're in Christ, and he is you. And Paul says this is an incredible, incredible promise of God. And he went on to say, as, as Heather alluded to, who can, who can separate us from the love of God? And he rattles off all these things and says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can stop God from completing what he began in your life and mine through his son, Jesus Christ. It, in God's mind and in his eyes, it is absolutely complete, which is why the Bible says when you were saved, you were saved and you were sealed as Noah was sealed in the ark. You are saved and sealed in the Holy Spirit, who's God's deposit inside of you that says, this is my deposit to let you know that unless something is stronger than the Holy Spirit to unseal you, you will remain sealed for all of eternity. That, my friend, is eternal security so that you're not walking tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but I know that I am secure in Christ, and it's not based on my performance. It's not based on whether I do good or bad. It is based solely upon what Christ has done for me and for you. God doesn't want us wondering, you know, we're going to make it? We're gonna, is it going to happen? Listen, God's promise, here's what Paul says, God's promises prevail because God is sovereign. God is the ruler over all of his creation. There is no one stronger, bigger, better, better anything than God. God. God is the one who is outside of time, space, and matter, who created time, space, and matter. It is his creation, which means you and I are not the center of this creation. God doesn't live for us. We live for him. Jesus is the center of creation. The book of Colossians says that Christ created all things, and by, by him all things were created for his pleasure and for his purpose. But God absolutely is profoundly in love with us. And so God's sovereignty means his absolute rule. And so Paul starts off, and he's going to answer this question. Because some of you have bumped up against this. Maybe you know somebody who says, well, 
You know, a God sovereign, that means that God makes the choices. About everything, that means that he decides, he determines who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. Like, it's like when babies come off the assembly line, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, eating, meeny, miny, hell, heaven. You have no choice in the matter. You have no say in the matter. God's already predetermined it. And therefore, you know, you just kind of go along for the ride. That is not what the Bible teaches. So there's, just going, there's going to be this unique tension that we're going to find that the Apostle Paul deals with and grapples with all through these chapters. Because here's what Paul when he gave this incredible promise in, in Romans 8, said, hey, nothing can separate us, Paul, in Paul's mind, he goes, I know somebody's going to jump up and say this. Well, now wait a minute. What about the Jews? God made incredible promises about the Jews, and yet the majority of them rejected their Messiah. God fumbled the ball. He didn't get them through. He didn't get them all the way to the end. What about them? Well, that's what he deals with. In Romans chapter 9, he deals with Israel's past. In Romans chapter 10, he deals with their present. In Romans 11, he deals with their future. So I want to break down how God's intersection with the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, intersects with our lives as New Testament believers. And so the Bible says God is sovereign over all of his creation. Let's look in Romans 1, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, speaking of Israel, those who of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is an ado the adoption as sons. Theirs the, the divine glory, the covenant. He's, gonna, he's listing off all of the advantages that the Jewish nation had, seven of them. There's adoption of sons, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and promises. There's other patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever be praised. Uh, amen. And so Paul, he's anguishing in his heart that many of his brothers have rejected their Messiah. And, and what's God going to do about this? And, and what does their future look like? And and did God drop the ball in all this? And so he starts by declaring God's absolute sovereignty over creation, which means that God does what he pleases, right? I've given you some verses. Um, here's some of them. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in the heaven and the earth. Ephesians 1:11 says that God works at all things after the counsel of his own will. That means that God, what? He determined your birth, right? He determined when you came into the world. That, listen, there might be illegitimate parents, but there are no illegitimate children. God created them, and he created them for a reason and a purpose. God is in control of all of his creation. He rules over all of his creation. He does what he pleases. But here's the second thing. God has given us free will. We have the ability to choose. When God created Adam and Eve and put him in the garden, he gave them the ability to choose whether or not they would love him and follow him or not, because that's what love does. If, if I take away your ability to choose, what would you say about me? Well, Greg's so controlling. God's just so controlling. He won't let me make any decisions because he's just so controlling. That's not loving. God, listen, God did not create evil, but he did create the potential for it. And the reason the potential was there is because he gave his creation the ability to choose. Even the angelic beings that he created had the ability to choose, which is why a third of them, under the leadership of Satan, rebelled against God and tried to usurp his throne. Now, here's the tension you find all throughout the New Testament. The tension between God's sovereign rule and our human responsibility. There is an intersection there, and there is a mystery there, okay? It's just a mystery. For example, the Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But the Bible also says, for God, in Ephesians 1, that God chose us before the foundation of the world. Well, which is it? Did I choose or did he choose? Both. I want you to think of it in terms like this. Now, this arch isn't in heaven. But if there was an, you get up in heaven and there's this huge arch 
And on the front side it says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you walk through that arch and you turn around and you look back and it says on the other side, for he chose you before the foundation of the world. Which is true, both. And so there's that tension all throughout the Bible, God's sovereign rule and our human responsibility. For example, we know that God moves in response to the prayers of his people. That God does very little outside of the prayers of his people. Does God have the ability to do that? Absolutely he does. But he chooses to engage us in the process of what he is doing here on planet earth. And so you're going to read words like election, predestination, free will. And there are those who've taken these words to the extreme for some who say, well, it's all man's decision and none of God's, or it's all God and none of man. Now, I, I'm, in these next few weeks, I'm not going to satisfy that mystery between God's sovereignty and humanity's free will. The Apostle Paul didn't even try to solve that mystery. He just said it's there, and we have to accept it. So when it comes to salvation, did I choose Christ or did Christ choose me? Both. But I would have never chosen Christ had Christ not chosen me. Because as Jesus said, you would have never come unless the Holy Spirit drew you. So that's, that's the dynamic, the, the tension that Paul's going to deal with. So in order to kind of uh, flesh this out, I want to... Um, I just want, I want us to, to, to um, look at it from a little different perspective than most people do. <clears throat> at this point, uh, most people fly into one of two directions. Well, Calvinism, some of you, what in the world's Calvinism? We'll talk about that later, <clears throat> which basically says um, you are you know, either part of God's elect or not, and Jesus only died for the elect, and it's irresistible grace. If God calls you, you can't resist it. And Arminianism says, no, it's all man, and Jesus died for the sins of the world, for all people. And there's a lot of other nuances. Can you give me my water, Dave? <coughs> Excuse me. And well, I'm going to dive into all these details because I want to try to make it a little more plain and a little more clear about where God is going. As a seminary student, um, we sat around for hours debating this kind of stuff, Okay. Boring. Boring? It's just boring. And, and you're gonna, I could debate this over, <clears throat> I could build a strong case for Calvinism, I could build a strong case for Arminianism. That doesn't matter. The question is, how does that affect my life now? How, how does this affect my walk and my relationship with Jesus now? So I'm going to take the remaining verses, beginning in verse 6, and kind of break this down and look at God's sovereignty over salvation. I want to give you encouragement today, okay? I want you to be encouraged in Christ. That meant if Jesus has sealed you in the ark, all right, he's taking you where he wants you to go. He's going to get you there. All right, you may fall down in the ark. You're not going to fall off of it, right? So he's going to bring you to the ultimate place he wants you to be. Is he going to force you to do that? Is he going to, like, pull your arm behind your back and say, Greg, you're coming, kicking and screaming like that little boy with his temper tantrum and his mother? No. But I can assure you one thing, God can arrange circumstances that will help guide and direct you where he wants you to be. Right? So God is so patient, he is so kind with us, and so God's sovereignty over salvation is seen in these verses. And so his choice of the Jews illustrate four principles about our salvation. Number one is this. Salvation is based upon God's grace not our race, all right? So here's what he says in verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are the child, God's children, but the it is the children of the promise who are regarded Abraham's offspring. Now, I want you to focus on verses 6 and 7. He says, not all who are descendants of Israel are Israel. Now, he sets up here a distinction between those who were born 
and their ancestry was Judaism, okay? So back in Genesis 12, when God decided he's going to establish a nation through whom the Messiah of the world would come, he chose a man named Abram. Remember, he called Abram out of Ur of Chaldea, so I want you to follow me. And he said to Abram from the get-go, I'm going to make you a blessing so that you can be a blessing to the nations around you. And I'm going to, I'm going to multiply your descendants as, as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashores. And Abraham set out, and this was based on what? A promise. God says, this is what I'm going to do. I want you to bless the nations around you. That's why God established not a nation through an existing nation. He, existed, he established his own nation from the, a nucleus because they were to be his missionaries. They were to display to the world what it looks like to follow Yahweh God. The problem with Israel is the problem that happens with us is rather than being distinct and unique from the nations, they wanted to be like the nations and started to be like the nations and forsaking God, which got them in a lot of problems. So uh, God established this promise, and who did he establish it with? With Abraham and through his descendants. And so what Paul went on to say and what he just really argued in chapter 2 of, of, of the book of Romans is this. Just because you were born with physically as an Israelite didn't make you a true Israelite. All right, you had the ancestry, you had the physical ancestry, but if you wanted to be a true Israelite, it wasn't something external, it's something that happens internally. So in chapter 2, he argued it from the perspective of circumcision. Just because, guys, you've been circumcised doesn't mean you are part of the true Israel. The part of the true Israel is based on what? Faith. Abraham had faith and God credited it to him as righteousness. It is faith. It's what happens internally that makes me a true Israelite. All right? So, so Paul is, is distinguishing here. Listen, you are a part of Israel because of God's grace. You're not automatically a part because you were born in the right race as an Israelite. It happens as a result of a transformation <clears throat> that takes place from the inside out. Salvation has always been an internal process, right? So if I get saved, and what's the first thing I do? When I got saved, first thing will happen to me. Somebody came up to me and gave me a list of rules. Hey, Here's what you're allowed to do, not do. Da, 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 da. So if I try to follow all of that, what am I doing? I'm trying to change from the outside in. But what happens if the Holy Spirit starts changing from the inside out, starts bringing conviction? Hey, Greg, you know, uh, this thing you're doing over here, not really good for you. Man, you, you really, let me help you out with this. This is not going to get you what you want or what you're looking for. Here's what you need to do. Now I'm motivated internally than externally, Right? So Paul came along and said, hey, the Jews had the law, but all it did was to inflame their desires to break it. It's like all of us. Somebody tells you you can't do something, that's exactly what you want to do. It's the way you were as a teenager, as a child. Tell me I can't do that? No, I'm going to do it. And so Paul says, those who are of the descendancy of Abraham, yes, they are Jewish, they are a part of Israel physically, but they're not necessarily a part of the real Israel spiritually. And this is going to be his argument. So <clears throat> racial Israel is believing Jews and unbelieving Jews, but the real Israel is believing Jews, and later on, God would take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, the church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church, but um, here's what Paul's argument is like, look. What determines whether or not a person who is Jewish, if they're saved or not, if they're going to heaven, if they're in a right relationship with him, if they're righteous in God's eyes, it's not based on the fact that they were born an Israelite, it's based upon the fact of what? The gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus. The basis of their salvation is whether or not they have accepted Jesus as their Messiah. 
And it's the same thing true in our lives, right? person's not saved on the basis of, you know, well, I was born in a Christian family. I was born in a Christian nation. I was born, you know, my grandfather was a pastor, my this, that, and the other. No, it is by God's grace, not because of my race. It's, 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 uh, it's a personal decision. And this is Paul's, his point to us is like, you know what? All of salvation, all the way through your glorification is an act of God's grace. God will give you everything you need to make it to where he is taking you. He'll give you everything you need for what he wants to accomplish in and through your life here on planet Earth. He has a will. He has a design. He has a unique purpose for you, and he wants to fulfill that purpose. He wants you to know and understand that purpose because of his grace. Secondly, salvation is based on God's promise, not our preference. And so um, he begins to flesh this out a a little bit further in verse 8. He says, in other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now, if you wanted to look at what he meant back in Genesis 17, verses 15 through 19, God says to this, who's the first son that Abraham fathered? Ishmael. Right? When God called Abraham out of Ur Chaldees, 75 years old, gave him promise that you're going to have a son. He's now 99 years old. There ain't no son. Sarah is like 10 years younger than him. So she's like 89, he's 99, and there's no promised son. They're beyond childbearing years. Where's the son? And so Sarah says, hey, let's just take Hagar, my handmaiden, And let's produce a son. And that's what they did. And Ishmael was born. After Ishmael's birth, God shows up to Abraham. He says, hey, that's not my promised son. I told you I'd give you a son. And you can imagine Abraham, but but God, I'm 99. My wife is 89. There ain't no babies coming out of that body. God says, oh, yes, there is. One year from now, you're going to have a son. And so what son was born? Isaac. He was the promised son. And after Isaac was born, there was conflict in the family because now Sarah is, you know, jealous over her handmaiden and jealous over Ishmael. Now, typically, the oldest son is the son of inheritance. He got two-thirds of the inheritance in the Jewish family, and the rest of it was split up among the others. And so here's, here's Ishmael, here is Isaac, but God said, no, Ishmael is a son of the flesh, Isaac is the son of promise. You might prefer him to be the son of promise, but he's not the son of promise, Isaac is the son of promise. He's the one that I've, I, I've promised through whom all of this is going to unfold in, in your life. And so Paul would say, the way a person becomes a child as God is Because something is happening in their hearts, and the way that it happens is because God does a miracle, right? It's not a thing in the flesh. It's not something I can earn. It's not something I deserve. How many people, when I ask them, well, what is the basis that you think you're going to heaven? I'm going to tell you what the basis is. I'm a good person. I'm a good husband. I pay my taxes. I treat my children well. I do this. I do that. And it is all based on performance. I prefer to get into heaven this way when God comes along and says, oh, no, 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 no. Apart from a miracle from me, you ain't never making it. But I love you. And I've set my love upon you. And I've provided a way for you to experience it. But you will never come unless my Holy Spirit draws you into that relationship. You won't. You'll always find something else, someone else, some other idol you're going to fill your, your life with. And so when it all shakes out, um, in the end, this is why Jesus said this in Matthew 7. There are going to be a lot of people who come to me in the end. 
and they're going to pull out their spiritual resume and say, what, Lord, did we not perform miracles? Did we not pray? Did we not tithe? Did we not do this and this? And Jesus says, I will turn to them and say, depart from me, for I never knew you. How can he say that? And right after that, he says, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the road that leads to paradise, to God's kingdom. Because we prefer working our way there, earning our way there. And God says, you can't. You got nothing with which to pay me for with your, your sin. It is all me. It's my grace. It is my mercy. I am sovereign over all of creation. I have provided the only way to heaven, which is why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father other than by me. And yet, how many Christians even say, well, you know, I just believe there's multiple roads and it all leads to the same destination. No, that's not what Jesus said. My friend and I took an Uber to the airport yesterday in Fort Lauderdale and talking to a man. He's Pakistani and he's Muslim. He was there. Why? What? By, by ancestry, right? He was just born Pakistani and you're born Pakistani, you're automatically Muslim. We started talking to him about, you know, their beliefs and you know, what do you believe, and what do you think about this, and, and so, you know, that basically he said, this is, a, you know what, he goes, I understand that the Muslim way isn't the only way, there are multiple ways, and that, you know, all this stuff, and going around, dancing around, all of this, no, it's not the only way, there is only one way, there is, his name is Jesus, it's not what people prefer, but it is, listen, the promise of God is rooted in Jesus and Jesus alone. Here's number three, salvation is based on God's providence, not our performance. Not only in verse 10, that, then he's going to use another example, but Rebecca's children, Isaac marries Rebecca, had one and the same father, our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born, they had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand. Not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. Whoa, whoa, back up. Hated? What does he mean here? Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have, I have hated. Now again, uh, Jacob and Esau were twins, and uh, Esau was the first one out of the womb, and seconds behind him, and you got Jacob, and he's grabbing the heel of his brother like he's trying to pull him back in. And so... Um, traditionally, again, Esau was the firstborn, would have been the son who received the inheritance. However, um, Jacob uh, wrangles that, you know, Esau gave up his birthright for a, a bowl of soup, and, and, you know, then Jacob and Rebekah have this plan, and they trick their father into receiving the blessing, and you can read all about that in the book of, of Genesis. The point is, God says, listen, before they've done anything, good or bad, before their lives ever began, I've already chosen who it is I want to be the son of inheritance. It's, it's God's choice, right? And it's not, you know, when he says, well, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. Now, this particular phrase comes out of Malachi chapter 1, which was dealing with a prophet dealing with not individuals, but nations. Jacob represented the nation of Israel, Esau, the Edomites. So he's not saying, I, I love certain individuals and I hate others. Malachi was railing against Esau and the Edomites because of their wickedness. And they you know, they left God, threw God, you know, in, in the back rear view mirror. And they were now attacking Israel. And Malachi was addressing that issue. The word hate here does not mean hate like we would think, I hate you. It means comparatively. And so, for example, Jesus used this word when he said, hey, if you want to be a disciple of mine, unless you hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister, you, you cannot be a disciple of mine. It doesn't mean that, does that mean if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, I've got to hate my wife, I've got to hate my children? No, it, it is a comparative. In other words, if you were to compare my life and my love for Jesus and my walk with Jesus, 
that if you were to look at it comparatively, everything, everything in comparison to that love and that walk goes, is, is second place or on down the rung. So it looked like I loved them less and loved Jesus more. That's what he's saying here. God chose Jacob out of what? A sovereign choice. Now watch this. Some of you think, well, God chooses people because he has foreknowledge and he knows how, what they're going to be like in life how horrible they'll be or how good they'll be, and he makes his decision on that basis. I've heard this, this argument, and that's how he determines who he's going to elect, who he's not going to elect, who he's going to send to hell, who he's going to send to hell, and all these other things. We, I mean, this is like um, some kind of bad theology on, on steroids. Notice what God very specifically said. Before they ever did anything, I made my choice. See, salvation... Is not, here's, here's where the rub comes. A lot of times when people are confronted with the Holy Spirit, they think to themselves immediately, well, if I'm going to come to Jesus, I got to straighten up my life. I got to get my act together. I, 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 I just got way too much stuff going on inside of my head that really not be good in the eyes of God. Right, if I could just get myself, pull myself together, get my act cleaned up, then maybe, it, no. God says, come as you are. He already knows you're messed up. Even after you got saved, I don't know how long you've been saved, whether five years, 10 years, 15 years, or 20 years, I can guarantee you, you're still messed up. Maybe not as bad, still messed up, right? This is a lifelong process. And so Paul is challenging us here <clears throat> by simply saying to us, listen, salvation is this based on God's providence, not our performance, it's not about our performance and why this is so important to us as, as Christians, how many of you, when you perform poorly, think to yourself, well, I'd love to pray to God about that, but, you know, I've, been, I've had a bad week, and I really can't go into his throne room and ask him anything, because after all, I, I've just really blown it this week. As though your relationship with God is based on your performance. It's not based on your performance, it's based upon Jesus. What has Jesus done? He has sealed you in him, in the Holy Spirit. How many of your sins have God forgiven, past, present, and future? All of them. All of them. All of them. You are now justified in God's eyes. You are sealed in Christ and he in you. I'm not saying that God just like, you know, just winks at our sin and, and just kind of like, oh, well, that's just Greg being Greg. Not at all. What I am saying is I can come boldly into the throne room of God, the Bible says. Why? Not because of my performance, but on the basis of Christ and what he has done. And I'm sealed in him. He is my ark. As long as he's floating, I'm floating. And so we get on this roller coaster relationship with God. It's like we're all over the map. God understands your hurts. He understands your, your struggles. He gets all of that. He wants to help you through that. But listen, he doesn't like love you less today because you blew it. But I'm going to love you a little more if you get it right. No, he, listen, God already knows everything about you before you were ever even knit together in your mother's womb. He already knows. It's grace. It's God's mercy. It's his love that has been cast over you, and it's the shadow over you. And so God is making this, this decision. And he says, listen, salvation, man, um, it's not, it's this, this relationship we have is not built on your performance. It's built on my providence. I chose you. I loved you. I, I issued my Holy Spirit to send a call out to you, to, paw, to, to, to pull you into this, this relationship, to give you the desire to even think about whether or not you would receive Christ to be Savior and Lord of your life. If I hadn't have done that, you would have, you would have never even given me second thought. You know, it wasn't until the Holy Spirit arrested me. I mean, in my mind, you die, you, you just cease to exist, right? That's, that was my philosophy. If you were to say, well, where did you come up with that theology? I don't know. I just what I believe, Right? And so I'm going along my merry way. I know what I wanted. I, I had goals for my life. I, I knew what I wanted to achieve with my life. I had all of my life planned out, you know, on the straight and narrow. And I had it all planned out for the next 20, 30 years. And then all of a sudden, God got a hold of my heart and changed everything. And here I am. This was not part of the plan. Trust me. 
Here's the last one. Salvation is based on God's mercy, not our merit. It's based on God's mercy, not our merit. He, he goes on to say in verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up to this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens those whom he wants to harden. Now, there's a tough saying and in reference to Pharaoh, and we wonder, well, okay, um, it doesn't depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Listen, here's why. If, it de- if, if God's mercy depended upon what I do, now I'm earning it. Or God owes me. Like, God, I did so many good things. You owe me. God says, no, no, no. My mercy, if, if I gave you what I owed you, ain't none of us making it. This is Paul's whole argument. The whole world's been condemned by sin. There's not a single person who will enter into the gates of heaven on the basis of their own works or their own performance or anything else. It is solely on God's mercy because had God just been purely just, he could have been just and wiped us all out and condemned us all and nobody could have said, you're unjust. But God chose instead mercy. To balance out the justice. And he's offering us a choice. So our freedom, human will comes into play. God says, here's where it's all going. Here's how it all ends. There's a heaven, there's a hell. You will get to help, you will get help decide which way you go. It's ultimately, you know, you're going to have to choose one way or the other. I will do everything in my power to help you make the right decision, but I can't force you. I can't kick you into heaven. I, I will not. And now I know, this is what goes into the minds of those of us who are believers, and we're like Paul in the beginning. Oh, I wish my countrymen, I wish my fellow citizens would, would receive Jesus as Messiah and go into heaven. If I could take their place, I would let, I'd go to hell on their behalf and let them go to heaven. And we have thought that about family members, right? Loved ones, and we thought, oh, God, just send me to hell. Let my mama go to heaven, or let my dad go to heaven, or let my brother or my sister. But it just doesn't work that way. And so we, we experience, we run into God's mercy. And here's the warning that Paul gives about the hardness of a heart. You read the book of Exodus, where God sent Moses to Pharaoh to let his people go. Ten times you're going to read about either Pharaoh hardening his heart or God hardening his heart. What does that mean? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden his heart? Yes, both. But the Bible says, you know, every plague that God issued against Egypt was against one of their gods. And, of course, Pharaoh was considered a god. And so after the sixth plague, the Bible keeps saying that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. It's like, I am not letting your people go. I'm not letting, I don't care what you do. I'm not letting them go. And then it says that, God began to harden his heart. Why did God do that? And what does that mean? And the, Paul says, God says, I raised you up for the time such as this. Kind of like what he did Queen Esther. I put you in a unique position for such a day as this. When he was, she was being used by God to save the entire nation of Israel from extinction. It's both. Listen, what it means is simply this. God hardens a person's heart simply means he just gives you over to yourself. This is what is meant in Romans chapter 1 when it says the wrath of God. God's wrath is not lightning bolts coming down from heaven and zapping people. You harden your heart and the Holy Spirit's trying to break through that exterior and the harder it gets, the more difficult it is for the Spirit of God to get through and years go by and years go by and finally God says, if that's what you want, 
out of my graciousness, out of my mercy, I will let you have what you want, and that's what it means for your heart to get hardened. Because when God withdraws and gives you over to yourself, you are in a very dangerous position, which when you read Romans chapter 1, you see the unraveling of humanity as humanity's heart gets harder and harder and harder, and their mind gets darker and darker and darker, and that's why we have reached an apex in our society that says a biological man can have a baby. God just gives you over. This is why we know statistically that most people are saved by the age of 18. And once you get beyond that, the more years that go by, the number of people who experience salvation in Christ goes down, 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 down. People get in their 40s or 50s, 60s, it's almost non-existent. Why? Because they've hardened their hearts, and God gave them over to the hardness of their hearts, and now not even the Spirit of God can penetrate any longer. A dangerous place to be. God didn't condemn Pharaoh. Pharaoh condemned himself. God just gave him over to his self-condemnation. And that is what Paul is trying to point out in this verse. So let me close it with this. Uh, here's the last fill in the blank. God is faithful to save his chosen remnant. The condemned have condemned themselves. So here's the caution, because I know what some of you are thinking. Well, if I were God, I'd have mercy on everybody and save everybody, and ain't nobody going to hell if I were God. That's a very... Very dangerous statement. Are you telling me you have more love, compassion, mercy, grace than God does? That you and I with our limited, finite minds who cannot see but a very small perspective of humanity would be more gracious than God? Every single time, watch it, every single time human mercy is compared to God's mercy we fail. And some of us say, well, if I were God, I'd be merciful. I'd forgive everybody their sin. And everybody's, it's all skate. Everybody's in. And yet you drive your car across the parking lot. Somebody pulls out in front of you and you want to murder them. You're really going to be more merciful than God? I don't think so. God has made a way. His name is Jesus. It is the essence of the gospel. It is what Paul's talking about, our salvation. The reason Paul says these wonderful truths in Romans chapter 8 are yours, and from God's perspective, it's already a done deal, is because you're in Christ. He is in you. He is your ark. You are safe and secure in his hands for all of eternity. Let's bow our heads together.